The Beaux-Arts Photography Podcast with Alan and Natalie Brio. This is the second episode of our series on living and photographing in Navarro land. And we're going to continue where we left off the last time, which is with our first show at the Grand Canyon at the Altova Hotel. So let's talk about how all of this started, because this was really the beginning of our business life, so to speak, as far as selling photographs in serious quantity. Oh, yes, we didn't have anything. We actually borrowed the displays. There was one, remember the side of the porch for artists who didn't have displays? You could use those pegboard displays. That's true. We, we had no equipment. Those. We had nothing. Yeah, we had no equipment whatsoever. No bins. At the, in Chinle, we sold in uh, cafeterias, in uh, you know, various locations where they had tables, basically. Where there's... We would just put the artwork on the tables and sell it that way. Yeah. And so when we went to the Grand Canyon, we did not have anything and we really did not know what to expect. And so we had two sides on the porch of the Antova Hotel. One side was uh, used by an artist who had displays, pro panels. They were permanently there. And then the other side, we had pegboards that were sort of tent shaped, you know, sort of like an A shape like or a triangle shape, or, shape. Yeah. And uh, they weren't very high, maybe four feet high. They were sort of amateurish, let's just say that. And not very practical. They were pegboards, little holes. And so what we did is we basically used push pins, I think, to um, pin our prints to the boards. We did not have frames. We did not have mats. We did not have bins. We had nothing. What we had were prints, right? And note yes. cards. And that was it, right? Yes, and we had no plastic bags because at that time that was a big secret. Clear bags was a big secret, so we didn't have those. So you and I made like these little uh, folio cases where leftover mat board that was like 8 by 10. We like hinged them together and put some sort of a tie or a ribbon on them and kind of like when people bought a photograph that's what they bought it in or something? Yeah, it was like a miniature folder, you know, like uh, two pieces of mat board hinged at the back with a piece of linen tape and two little uh, ribbons. Yeah. And when somebody bought a print, we would put it in that little folder and uh, that was the yeah, we packaging. had no, no bag, no envelope, right, no... Right. It wasn't a bad idea. It no. was just extremely time-consuming to make and, you know, oh, in yeah. retrospect, costly because we were using mat board... Uh, instead of a paper bag or a plastic bag or an envelope <laughs> or an envelope i mean you know, you know and uh, after that we realized that we could go to an office supply store like office max or uh, and buy a hundred nine by twelve envelopes yeah for 2.99 you know yeah they were very inexpensive yeah. at that time and so we started doing that we started buying letter size envelopes but that's only because we saw another artist using that we right. were like well that's smart we learned as we went. <laughs> there was it no was book. a very high learning curve and very fast. <laughs> well, we had no choice because the volume was there. We were selling a lot. Even though we didn't know what we were doing, the customers didn't care. They wanted the, the goods. Right. You know? So the concern was because the prints weren't wrapped was uh, pickle juice on the reservation because those kids love to eat pickles. Because Navajo kids love pickles. Right. And they don't love small pickles. They love giant pickles. Yeah, the real big ones. How, what would you say? Two inches wide and six inches long. 
I mean, yeah. you know, now they say them, they call them the big papa or the big mama. Yeah, know? they do. They call them the big papa <laughs> These are like big monstrous mama. pickles. And uh, every time I would see a kid with a pickle in their hand coming to my booth, I would sort of uh, cringe. freak out and cringe because the next <laughs> thing is they would put their pickle filled hands on my prints and ruin them because I had no paper bag, you know, and no plastic bag. At the Grand Canyon, we did not have that to worry about. We had ice cream. Yeah, but people had ice cream. <laughs> so that was another problem. So eventually, you know, we figured out where to get plastic bags. Yes. And, uh, One artist yeah. told us because they were really, you know, because they could see that we were struggling and first starting out. And they thought, you know, we really need to tell these guys where to buy the clear bags because this is ridiculous. You know, they, they they're going to ruin their artwork. Right. They had pity for us and they yes. told us... Uh, ImpactImagesClearBags.com. Well, they made it perfectly clear that you were the lowest guy on the totem pole a number of times. <laughs> right. And I think, you know, obviously now... And we, we were. <laughs> all of that information is widely available in, in part because of my book. You know, I, I wrote the book on marketing to help artists so that they don't have to go through what we went through, you know, because a lot of artists were keeping all of these little details sort of a secret, Right. Just to prevent competition from, uh, you know, competing with them, from other artists competing with them. And obviously that wasn't interesting to me. You know, I want to compete on the basis of quality, not on the basis of knowing where to get bags and the other artist doesn't, you know. Right. And so I, I wrote this book and now everybody can, you know, have access to that information. But back then... We, we did not know anything. No. And it wasn't limited to getting plastic bags or clear bags. It was also about how to pack artwork. We had no idea. No. And things would break when we shipped it. Oh, and eventually yeah. one of the artists, I think the same one that told us where to get the plastic bags, told us how to pack the artwork. Yeah, you know? she explained it to yeah. me, how to package it. And then I also remember that once we started buying frames for our photographs, that were matted and printed on watercolor paper, I remember another artist was looking across and said, you know, you really need to limit your moldings to two or three because you have so many different frames hanging right. on that side. And that was another thing we had never mm -hmm. thought of or, you know. And so it was actually the other artists right. that were kind of helping us a little bit here and there. A little bit at a time, yeah. yeah. I mean, we would buy one or two frames of one kind and then one or two frames of another kind and, and on and on and on. And one of the artists told us, he said, uh, you need to buy several hundred frames at once, all the same type. And at first we were shocked. We were like, well, what am I going to do with 100 frames? Well, yeah, and so we were really shocked. And he said, well, maybe since you guys are just starting out, maybe you only need to buy maybe 25 or 50. Right. Maybe you don't have to buy 100 like I have to buy. I have to buy 100. But maybe you guys can start off buying 25 or 50 right. of one size, you know, to start out with. And so that also helped us perceive that, that this was going to be a high volume situation and that you needed to have frames on hand or in stock. Yeah, and I think the very first time that I bought frames in volume, obviously from a wholesale frame dealer because uh, that was no longer retail at that point, I was very nervous. And, uh, you know, once I had done that and they sold, I may have ordered 20 or 30. I started ordering by the 100 and soon enough we were ordering 300 frames a month, you know. And going through them very fast. Yes, we were. You know, because it was a volume situation and we had to keep up with it. We could not afford to be out of stock. 
And so we basically progressed uh, sort of really nearly because we have already sort of uh, felt bad for us at one point. And it's not exactly that they would volunteer information, but I think at some point they just looked at us and said, you know, this is ridiculous. And if you're going to do this, if you're going to be there, you might as well just do it right, you know. But because of that, when I was doing shows in Scottsdale up until 2008, I would help all of my girlfriends. I mean, they were running over asking me, well, what's the, what's the tax, you know? They would borrow packaging materials. They, they would bring their monthly taxes and have mm-hmm. me help them do it at the show. And I was willing to help them because, you know, when we started, people helped us. To some extent, some helped us, but not all of them helped no. us. Most of them did not want to help. You know, most of them were happy just making their sales and watching us flounder. Struggle. You know, struggle. <laughs> and, you know, have a hard time and, you know, be stressed and get nowhere. Um, but we obviously want to help. And uh, that's because, as I said, I'd rather compete on the basis of quality than on the basis of wh- knowing where to get frames and plastic bags, you know. Right. Yeah. Right. But the progress did not come immediately. I mean, it, we went fast, but it still took several years. You know, we... Uh, took five years. It took five... Well, we did the show for how long? Five years, seven years? Oh, maybe seven years, because the first year you only yeah. had two days, and then maybe the second year, eight days? Yeah, the first year we had two days, and it might sound very little, but, you know... That was, was a big deal for us. And it was big income for us at the time and they were very hard to get shows you know nobody could get in right and a lot of the artists uh, looked at me and talked to me and said how did you get in this show right and I told them I said well I called Mary Lois you know I found the phone number it took me two days I talked to the operator I called everybody at the Grand Canyon and eventually they told me that it was organized by the lady that operated the Bright Angel Air Salon and I called her and she said, sure, send me some of your work. And then uh, she gave me two of her days. And a lot of artists were shocked. They because were. they did not want anybody to get in that show. Or they, to know the person right. uh, it was know, a dirty who secret. organized yeah, it. They were yeah. keeping it a secret. And, they uh, were. And what she did is, uh, in the very beginning, not just that first year, but she, the second year, she also gave you some days that she couldn't do once again. But then, like, there was, like, other artists that when they canceled, she didn't give it to the other artists on the porch. She would call you up and say, hey, you know, I got a couple of more days here. I got three days here. Do you want them? And you're like, yeah, I'll take them, you know. I think she liked me, and I think also she thought the other artists had plenty of days, you know. Right. And it was literally counted like that. People would count how many days they had on the porch of the Antivar because one day was worth, you know, a lot of money in sales. And so... Because every day was pretty much the same. If you had 10 days, you could multiply the income for one day by 10. And, you know, some artists had several hundred days. Yes, they did. So I think in the beginning, I did not come across as a threat to the other artists. And I think that's why. And she didn't see you as a threat to the other photographers. And so that's why she sort of let me in, you know, a few days at a time. And I think in large part, that's because I was doing digital photography. Right. I was printing on watercolor paper. I was uh, processing on the computer. At the time, nobody thought this was any big deal, you know. This was 1997 when we started, right? Right. In the national parks, they loved it because there were no chemicals. Right. But the park liked it because of the environmental qualities. But the other artists at that show looked at me 
as somebody who was doing something weird off the wall that wasn't very serious that you know for them the money was in making chemical prints you know you, you use the film camera you made chemical prints you send them to a dark room they were processed that way they were on glossy paper uh, framed on the mat uh, sorry framed on the glass you know traditional presentation and that's what you sold and that's where the money was to see somebody make prints on their computer print them on an inkjet printer you know i was using an Epson printer and a HP printer in the beginning and uh, not even frame them, not even mat them, just sell them like that. It was sort of amateurish and they didn't see where the money was. Right. You know, they thought, well, here's a guy who is sort of doing something artistic and having fun and not very serious. He's not going to get anywhere. Well, you even you printed know. on papyrus paper. I printed on papyrus paper. I printed on watercolor paper. This is before companies like Hanimule and uh, none of them Elford. existed yeah none of, this was before companies like Hanimule and Elford started offering watercolor paper well we went to the art supply store and bought arches watercolor paper and we bought mm -hmm. the tooth size of the watercolor paper that we thought would print well in the thickness that would go through the printer and we had to figure all of that out yeah, yeah and these papers were not coded they were basically the same papers used to make watercolors Paintings, yes. Yeah, paintings. And, uh, you know, this was way before, like I said, any of the manufacturers offered coated watercolor or cotton-based paper. Everything was glassy. Um, inkjet paper was basically office paper. There was some photo paper, but it was all glassy. Right. And I did not like the glassy look. I liked the watercolor look. And so I, I was doing something, and, had, and the paper I was using had a heavy texture. So it, it wasn't did. very detailed. And the artists were looking at that thinking, oh, this guy is never going to get anywhere, you know, so who cares? Let's tell him how to get a bag. Let's tell him where to get a frame. Let's help him a little bit, you know, so instead of making 10 bucks, he'll make 15. Because right? he's not a threat. <laughs> he's not a threat. Um, but the problem for them, not for me, is that, well, in the beginning, I suddenly was not a threat. It soon came to be that digital imaging was taking over because there was some very serious advantages. And the main advantage was that well, for them, in order to get a good price on a print, they had to make hundreds of prints. For me, all I had to do was one print. Right. It did not cost me more to make one print or to make 10 prints. You know, the price was the same because I was making them myself. So one print would cost me, let's say, a dollar. 10 prints would cost me $10. But for them, if they made one print, it might cost them 50 bucks. But if they made a 100, then each of them may have been a few dollars on me. So they could not take a chance with a new image. No, and also they didn't want to print other images until they had sold this inventory or this stock that they had on hand, whereas we would just print one or two. If it didn't sell, it wasn't any big deal because our goal was to only have the best sellers. So if we saw that an image didn't sell, it didn't come back to the next show. Right, we just kept it yes. because we had nothing tied into it, just a little bit of paper, a little bit of ink, and so what, you know. We'd try another image. And eventually things sold regardless. Regardless, you know, because if you have only one print, I mean, eventually somebody's going to buy it. We had no overhead to speak of, but we were able to test the market very fast with a very large number of images without much of a financial overlay, you know, overhead, right. you know, and that pushed us ahead because the, the the whole thing at the Grand Canyon was really about what kind of photographs do you have, where where are they taken, you know. And uh, it, it dawned on me very fast, very soon, that the other artists did not understand that. That they were selling photographs of the Grand Canyon because they had a pretty photo of the Grand Canyon. They did not understand that 
customers, you know, tourists look for very specific locations. Right. And the most remarkable one, the, the most remarkable thing that I realized early on is that none of them had a photograph taken from the El Tava Overlook. Right, right in front of us, 60 right in, feet. Right, 60 from feet from where we sold was one of the best overlooks in the Grand Canyon. For sunset, it was a beautiful sunset. Yeah, and for sunrise. Yes. Uh, visible not only from the porch and the canyon, but also from the rooms upstairs. Yes, the suites. The suites, which were the most expensive rooms, where yes. obviously the customers with the most money were going to stay. And no artist had a photo taken from an overlook. And so what I did is I went there, I took the best photo that I could, and I printed it. And of course, I printed one or two because I never knew what was going to sell. And it sold immediately. And right. the next show, I brought 10, they sold immediately. And I started bringing hundreds of them. Uh, I could never have enough. And then what happened is the other photographers looked to see what was selling. Right. And then they realized, well, <laughs> he's selling a photograph just taken from right here. So then they all started taking photographs right. And from it was right really there. interesting what they told me in the beginning because they looked at it and they said... Uh, that's selling? I'm like, yeah, it's selling. It's my best seller. They're like, oh, well, but you just took it over there, 60 feet away. I'm like, yes, exactly. That's why it's selling. They're like, oh, well, I never thought I would have to take one there because everybody can go there and take one themselves. Well, sure, they can, but they can't take one as good as we can. That's right. the whole point. You know, right. it's not because it's close. It's because we have skills and we have equipment that the customers did not have. Right. We're professional photographers. And so all of a sudden, all the artists had photographs taken from the Altava Overlook. You know? Right. Um, and then we started to know the names of right. the temples, you know, and we could tell them from the Altavar Overlook, well, this is Zoroaster right here. Mm. And I remember I went to the GCA, the Grand Canyon Association bookstore, and I bought these panoramic postcards, and it had all of them labeled you know it had showed the whole entire grand canyon and i remember i memorized those so that when we sold i could tell the customers well you know this is zoroaster this is brahma temple you know and tell them the story mm -hmm. you know sunrise sunset you know this is a bright angel trail that's the north rim and how many miles the north rim is from the south rim and and all of that information and it helped sell the images even more yeah because you were educating the customer right because we assume that if somebody buys a photo they know what's in the photo but the fact is they don't a lot of people did not know how far the north rim was from the south rim i mean they know that it's not a mile but they did not know that it was 12 to 15 miles right they did not know the names of the formations right and if they knew the names they did not know what they looked like necessarily so we had people coming to us saying do you have a photo of isis temple that's true. I had a, a group of Zoroasterian, it's a religion. Yes, it in, is. Uh, I remember. Somewhere in the Middle East that came to me and said, do you have a photo of Zoroaster Temple? And I looked at him and I said, I don't have one. I have like 10 or 15 of them because it's the one right there in front of the Altava. And he said, oh, that's great because I've went everywhere. Nobody has one. And I said, well, you know, you pick and choose. And he bought them all. Right. <laughs> you know, I mean, he bought them all. And right. As was, gifts. You know, he was like, do you have another one? I'm like, well, let me dig deeper. Maybe I do, right? I made a sale on the basis of the fact that I knew the locations. Right. And again, the other artists did not. No. You, you would think one guy had been selling at the Grand Canyon for 15 years. You would think that he would have realized that it's important to educate the customers. Right. But he didn't. No. You know? I um, think they just thought that 
you know, just like we did in the beginning, that if people love the photograph, they'll buy it, you know. Right, and which is the artistic sort of misconception, one right. of the greatest misconceptions in the selling of fine art by artists, which is if the photo is beautiful, it will sell itself. Right. But it doesn't work that way. I mean, sure, once in a while, somebody's going to look and say, this is beautiful, I'll buy it. But what about the guy that comes and says, you have a photo of Zoroaster? Well, obviously, he's not interested in whether it's beautiful or not. Right. He's interested in getting that particular And that's where I really started to learn that stories, mm -hmm. you know, and that educating the public, you know, about the area sold images right. and so then when we started doing the fancy cut mats and we started to put in you know decorations and stuff and I could tell these little stories about you know the decorations and about the photographs I would sell even more right because you're making it emotional that's what mm -hmm. happens you're making the customer relate to the photograph not just on the basis of beauty but on the basis of having a personal connection with the image a lot of people wanted a photo of a place they had been to. And of course, they all had been to the Altava Overlook because it was right there in front of us. But some of them had been to uh, Hopi Point at sunrise, or they may have been to Yavapai Point for sunset. And we would ask them, we would say, where have you been today? Right. Which overlook did you visit? And they'd say, oh, we were at Hopi Point for sunrise. And we would ask them, say, well, how was it? So it was fantastic. And I said, well, let me show you, you know, this photograph. Did you see it? It's uh, taken at Hopi Point at sunrise. And they would look at it and they would say, you know. That's exactly what I saw. That's exactly what I saw. And yes. so we were like, well, how would you like to take this one home with you? And, right. and we would make sales on that basis. We because did. there was an emotional connection. Right. It wasn't about the price. It wasn't about the size. It was about the fact that here was something that we had seen. Right. You know, and of course, we had to find the right size, the right price. But that was secondary. Yes, it you was. Know. I mean, once they were sold out on the photograph, the next thing was just finding a size that was appropriate or adequate right. for their space. And sometimes they would buy the biggest one and sometimes they didn't. But we always started with the biggest oh, one. Yeah. And so we sort of invented our way of sending photographs because that was not taught to us by the other artists because no. they really did not know how to do it you know they they were good they had the product they had photograph that were mattered frame they had plastic bags they had you know credit card processing machines they had displays they had all of that but they did not have the marketing skills no you know they did not know how to close a sale and in that respect they were just like most artists who haven't studied marketing, they were sort of hesitant to close the sale. They did not ask for the sale. You right. Know? They'd look at the uh, customer and they'd be like, the customer would be like, well, I like it. And the, the artist would be, well, that's great. And the customer would say, it's really beautiful. And i say, well, I'm glad you like it. And we would be like, okay, ask for the sale, <laughs> you know. Right. And we started doing it, you know, instead yes. of looking at each other. In would the, you like to take this home art. with you right. today? Yeah, instead of, yes. of having compliment after compliment, we'd look at the customer and say, well, is this the one for you? Right. Do you want it shipped or do yes. you want to take it with you? Um, how do you want me to pack it, you know? Uh, is, vi is this <laughs> going to fit your, your suitcase or do you want me to ship it? Or what do oh, you want to yeah. do, right? <laughs> well, and you know? we were... I don't know if we were the few that actually gave bubble wrap. And so sometimes I would say to them, you know, I have bubble wrap. And I would run and grab a sheet mm -hmm. of bubble wrap and show them what I could wrap the framed piece up in. And sometimes right. I put a piece of cardboard over the glass and, you know, so that if it did hit it, you know, if it was hit a shock or something mm -hmm. that, you know, it wouldn't break. And Well, our problem became 
having too much shipping to do. Yes. Because obviously everybody at the Grand Canyon was traveling. Everybody was a tourist. The locals did not buy artwork. And if they bought it, it was small prints. And so everybody wanted it shipped. And so we had to face the fact that we could not ship everything we sold. And on some months, we had to ship hundreds of packages. And for us, it was an enormous amount of work because we were not really, you know, a shipping company. And so what we started doing is taking bubble wrap at the shows in order to wrap the photographs, especially the frame photograph in bubble wrap, so that people could take it with them without breaking it. Right. And that cut down on the shipping. It did. You know. I would bring even extra sheets of cardboard right. for prints. Maybe they bought two 16 by 20s, you know, mat size. I would put them face to face together and have, make sure I had sturdy mat board on the outside to kind of stiffen mm-hmm. it a little bit just so that they would take it with them. Right. Because if we could save, uh, let's say, half of the shipping, you know, that way, not have to ship that many pieces, it was more time we could spend creating new photographs and creating new pieces, you know, creating inventory, basically. But we could never avoid having to ship, but we suddenly cut down on it. And uh, that was a a big thing because that shipping was insane. And then we lived in Chinle, which had a post office, no UPS office. And we would go to the post office with hundreds of packages and they would look at us not knowing what happened. I would load the bed of the truck Three times, I would make three uh, runs to the post office to ship all of these packages before uh, we did the next show. And, you know, I would do one truckload at a time, ship one truckload, come home, reload it, uh, go back to the post office, you know, ship all those, come home, reload, <laughs> ship it again. I mean, it was just insane. And I remember being there at the post office with all the packages piled up in uh, a corner of the post office on the day that the Navajos get their monthly checks, you know, oh, their monthly yes. welfare checks. Yeah. And they're all waiting. They show up at, you know, they deliver the checks. They basically go into, put them into the PO boxes around noon, right? Yes, they, they, they show do. up at 8 a.m. when the post office opens and they start asking for their check. Right. You know, and Dan, you know, who was the postman at the time, would look at them and say, it's not going to be until noon. And they would go back outside and come back half an hour later. Is my check there? It's like, okay, don't you get it? It's going to be delivered at noon, right? And so, you know, while all of that circus is going on, and we're not talking about one guy, we're talking about a hundred. Right. You know, all waiting for their checks. We're trying to ship all these packages. And as this is going on, we're trying to ship our packages, and those people are waiting in line in front of us. And behind us, in a sort of revolving door situation. <laughs> asking for their check at the window. <laughs> asking for their check. Not getting the point that there's not going to be anything until noon. You can ask a hundred times. It's not going to make it go any faster. And here we are trying to ship our packages. And it, it was a circus, literally. <laughs> Sometimes I, w- I worried that the post office truck would not be big enough to take all the packages, you know. <laughs> I know. I thought about that a few times yeah. that, you know, we'd fill up because there actually weren't post office vehicles. No. There was a contractor that Just, was hired yeah. Yeah. to come out and deliver the mail yeah. to the reservation from Gallup and drive it out onto the res. Right. And so, you know, it's not like you had an 18-wheeler you know, truck no. marked, you know, United States Postal Service no. or anything that was loading all these packages and mail into it. It was a subcontractor of the post office that would deliver all the mail on the reservation. Yeah, deliver and pick it up. And yeah. he did not just do Chinle, he did every city between Chinle and Gallup. Oh, all the little 
you know, little places. Right. And some of them were just, you know, post office boxes and little convenience stores or gas stations right. in the but, middle of nowhere. But eventually, you know, he could have had a lot of packages somewhere else and not have any more room. You know? Right. And so, then we'd have to wait till tomorrow. Right, yeah. You know, they'd have to sit overnight. Sure. And then you'd, yeah. you'd have to wait for them to pick it up the next day. It, it was stressful. It was very sure. stressful. Was very I remember stressful. that. Um, <laughs> yeah. So definitely, you know, a big connection between um, living on a race and being sort of creative, you know. I remember how we could never have enough foam peanuts to stuff the boxes. And I bought I, a shredder, a paper shredder, in order to shred newspaper to have a fill for the boxes because yes. we could not get foam peanuts. And you can't order foam peanuts and have them delivered at an effective cost. No, but I asked all of my teachers to save all the foam peanuts that they possibly could, right. you know, to ship the artwork. I didn't necessarily tell them what the peanuts were for because, you know, I didn't want everybody to know how insane our life was and that you were selling this much at the Grand Canyon. But I did have uh, a lot of people saving peanuts for me and whatever, you know, they could find as shipping supplies. They would come to my room and say, you know, hey, can you use this, you know, can you use that and so that helped too yeah we never had enough packing supplies and so that shredder we would pick up you know piles of free newspapers oh, and then yes. we shred them and create film for the boxes that way well before you yeah. even had the paper shredder i remember balling up right. newspaper in my hands and we, and we trying would, to package uh framed pieces we had cramps in our hands just from building newspaper. <laughs> that's when i thought you know there gotta be a bit away so i bought the paper shredder and uh yeah, it, it was insane. I mean, the the whole aspect of shipping was a problem, but then also the whole aspect of having the supplies was yes. a problem. Because in Chile, there was nothing for sale that we could use for the business. I mean, yeah. at all. I, I remember one time when uh, I needed to cut a piece of glass, and I did not have a glass cutter. I, I had to make a piece of glass a little smaller to fit in a smaller frame. I had a big piece of glass, and all I needed was a glass cutter. And we I did not have one. We went through the whole town. Nobody, none of the stores, one of none of the two stores, right? Right. <laughs> you know, which was I think Bashers and uh, the general store. The general had store had a glass cutter. No. And so I had to drive to Gallup to buy a glass cutter, you know, right. which was a hundred miles one way. But the the whole problem of supplies was phenomenal to the point where, as the years went by, I it, realized that it was better for me to buy everything I needed for one year at the beginning of the year. Right. And yeah. extra glass, too, because I remember right. once one time I pressed too hard on the back right. of a frame and cracked it, cracked the glass, and you can't replace glass in Chinle. And then that's when you decided, you know, we need to go to Gallup and buy extra glass and just keep it on hand so that when this happens we can replace the glass. Right, but that's for the glass. But what I'm talking about is buying the supplies for the entire year at the beginning of the year. Yes. And I started having those delivered by 18-wheeler truck on pallets. I'd buy backing boards for an entire year. Thousands of backing boards. I mean, I think one time about 10,000 of them. I'd buy clear bags for the, the entire year. Tens of thousands of clear bags right. on pallets. And the 18-wheeler driver would just drop it in front of the trailer and we had to carry it inside and eventually he, had barely enough room to leave, you know. I know. Because most of the room was, most of the space well, was I taken by the supplies. You also bought like 25 cases of mat board yeah, as well, well what that happened was trucked is, uh, in. 
what happens is if you buy one case of Matboard, they ship it UPS. And UPS is very destructive. But if you buy, let's say, 20 or 30 or something like that, boxes, you know, each box has 25 sheets in it. Correct. Right? So 10 boxes would be 250 sheets, 20 boxes would be 500 sheets. If you buy that many, then they deliver it with an 18-wheeler truck, with a shipping company, and they are on a pallet, and they are not damaged That's because right. they are on a pallet. So I started doing that. I'd order 20 cases or 40 cases a year, delivered on a pallet, and it got to the point where I had to buy a shed just to store all of these supplies. Yes. Because we had no more room in the, in the trailer. Right. Uh, <laughs> we the were living in that trailer. Right, yeah. I mean, we lived in a 16... 60 foot by 13 foot wide, 60 foot long by 13 foot wide mobile home, also known as a trailer. <laughs> and uh, we had no more room for ourselves. So we uh, bought a shed where we could stock all of that. So we started taking proportions that we are completely out of control. Yes. <laughs> <You know? laughs> People were looking at us saying, and what do you do again? And I'm like, I'm an artist. And we're like, oh my God. I did not know that that's what being an artist entailed. And I said, well, you know, that's what it entails in my case, right? <laughs> <You know? laughs> but eventually that was necessary because once we had that delivered at the beginning of the year, we were done for the year. Yeah. And that carried us for a long time. Maybe not the whole year, but it carried us for a long time. And I did the same with uh, frames. supplies. Yeah, you know, frame supplies, you know, the boards, the backing boards, the hooks, the cable, the tape, you know, I mean, everything was bought in large quantities so that I did not have to order it over and over right. again. Yeah. I remember you ordering 250 to 500 frames at one time mm -hmm. and getting all of those in boxes. Yeah, and I remember not having any place to live <laughs> because all of these frames were... It was a lot of work because we were doing volume. Right. And there was no way around it at the Grand Canyon because we increased the prices to reduce the volume. But no matter how much we increased the prices, we could not go beyond a certain point because this was not an environment where people were buying on the basis of my name. They were buying on the basis of the location. Right. They wanted photographs of the Grand Canyon. And so if we pushed the price too far, they wouldn't buy at all. No, you know? because the El Tavar in their little gift store, mm -hmm. you know, they sold small photographs there and we couldn't really exceed the price of the El Tavar either, you know, because... By a little bit, because we were there in person, but, but not, not by much. a lot. Yeah, we yeah. could not go 10 times over. We could go a time and a half, two times at the most. Right. Yeah. So w what we could do was offer larger pieces. Yes, and, and frame. And, and then offer frame pieces, which we didn't, and then there was no point of reference. And, but still, you know, it, it was limited because after a certain price point, then people would stop buying. Yes. You know? So we could cut down on the volume, but we could never eliminate the volume. And in the end, it almost killed us because that kind of work became so phenomenal that it, it was running us into the ground, you know. Because, you know, in the beginning we had two days a year and, you know, sold a few, maybe 10, 20, 40 pieces. But by the end of the show, we were doing a week a month. And even though it seems like not much, that one week we would sell several thousand prints, framed and unframed. When we went home, we would spend a solid week packing and shipping. And then we would spend another week resupplying the inventory, you know, printing, framing, matting, all of that. And we were back at the Grand Load Canyon. Load and go again. Yeah, load and go and uh, started all over again. One week at the Grand Canyon, one week shipping, one week printing and shipping, and then uh, back at it and uh, nonstop. <laughs> we were doing well financially, but it was killing us physically. <laughs> well, I think the first few years you did it by yourself, you know. Right. And then it, you just got too busy where 
I had so many sick days accumulated for all those years of teaching that I never I never used my sick days. So then when it got so busy, then I would take the whole week off as well and go with you. Right. And um, I had a very good boss who didn't want to lose me as a teacher, and I was one of the best teachers there. Mm-hmm. You know, they never... Chin Lee never had an art teacher stay as long as I had, and they didn't want to lose me. And I, the kids loved me, and so they're like, you know, it was okay with him to use right. my sick days for that. He actually didn't have a problem with yeah. it. Yeah, because teachers in Chin Lee sort of fit into two categories. Either they stay a year and then they leave, or they stay a long time. They do. And uh, a long time goes up to 10 years, and then after 10 years, usually they never leave, right? Right. And so we sort of fit into the second category where we stayed seven years and then we left. Right. But I think if we had stayed three more years, we might still be there, you know. But in our case, we left because eventually the Grand Canyon show came to an end. Exactly. And uh, it came to an end because in the eyes of the National Park Service, we were considered to be subcontractors of uh, the Fred Harvey Trading Company, which is now Zentera. And uh, the National Park decided when they renewed Zentera's contract that they could no longer have subcontractors. They had to have employees or nothing. And so Zentera tried to make us employees, but it did not work out. And so eventually the show came to an end. Right. And when that happened, then we decided to move away from Chinle because there was no way to make an income there, you know, in any sort of proportion close to what we were doing. And we decided to move to Phoenix and do shows in this area. Right. And, and so that's what we did. And in a sense, it was for the better because that show was killing us physically. I mean, we were at the point where in order to increase our income, we had to produce more and more and more work. And then eventually there's a limit. Mm-hmm. You know, something is going to have to break. Right. <laughs> and I think we just uh, stopped before things broke down. So I think it was for the better. You know, but, but that's how it came to an end. So I think for this next episode, we'll just continue talking about other aspects of uh, living on the reservation. We could talk about selling at art shows on the reservation, you know, the, the bazaars, or some other aspect of uh, life on Navajo land. I mean, there's many aspects, even regarding the business, you know. Uh, we had uh, one of the very few computerized mat cutters in Chinle, for example. Right. <laughs> you know. Right. <laughs> Um, and other aspects. I mean, I think w- what makes Navarroland, uh, living in Navarroland fascinating is the fact that nobody does it. Right. You know? Very few people. V- yeah. And those who do don't talk about it. No, you not know? usually. Obviously, for the Navajos, for the Native Americans, it's normal to live there. That's where they are from. But for white people, it's not normal. And those that go there, for the most part, are very quiet people that don't talk about it, you know. Right. We're sort of an exception where we are very verbal about it and we've reflected on it and we actually had a very different story. We did not just live there, we actually did some very unique things while living there. That's true. And, and so, you know, that's what this series is all about, is talking about all of these different aspects. And, you know, we can talk about photography in Navajo land, we can talk about, you know, Navajo food, Navajo culture, you know, there's an endless list. and. So it's not like we have uh, a shortage of material. So for today, let's just stop here and uh, we'll continue this in the next episode, which will be episode number three of this series on uh, living and photographing in Navajo land.